as we continue our verse-by-verse exposition of this wonderful book. Ephesians chapter 1, and we will be looking at verse number 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And we're going to stop there. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we just saying, speak to us through your word. Father, this truth contained in this text is magnificent. So much so that that, that my mind can only grasp a portion of it and my mouth can speak less than that. So, Father, we ask you to show us your glory in this text. We, we ask for the illumination of your spirit that you would move our hearts and our minds by the truth contained in this verse. As we contemplate these things, Fill our hearts and our minds and our mouths with praise. And Father, that those who don't know you, that they would see these wonderful truths and, and surrender to you this very day in faith and repentance. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. To understand something of who God is and what he has done for us inevitably leads to praise. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is about King Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, you are talking about a great, a powerful, a mighty, a brilliant king who built an unimaginable kingdom. A brilliant man. One of his monuments, the Hanging Gardens, is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And this man was filled with pride and arrogance. Why? Because of how great he was. In his mind, he was magnificent. And God was nobody. But something happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. God told this powerful, brilliant king, I'm going to humble you. And I'm going to make you graze grass like an ox. And your hair is going to grow like feathers and your your nails are going to be like talons, like claws. And you're going to do this for seven years until you understand that the Most High rules. And the interesting thing is that God did this. 
And Nebuchadnezzar was out of his mind. He was insane. He was a lunatic. He literally grazed fields like a cattle. He was not contemplating the greatness of God, but something happened. After that seven-year period, God restored him with a new heart. And after this seven years of being humbled, humbling this king that no man could humble, what did Nebuchadnezzar say? Daniel tells us this. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed, praised the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. Why? He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and no one can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? This man was a thousand percent convinced of God's sovereignty in his life. Not only in his life, but in heaven and on earth. He does what he wills. And this led Nebuchadnezzar to praise God. The Apostle Paul, sometimes while he's writing and he's contemplating the theology and doctrine, he he just all of a sudden burst out in praise. Oh, the the depths of the riches, both of the the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his ways and his judgments past finding out. He's overwhelmed, so he, he moves from theology into praise. And in a manner of speaking, Paul even just injects little little pieces of praise into his writings, if you notice. In Romans 9, 5, he says, the the eternally blessed God. He's talking about God, but he can't help but to say eternally blessed. In Romans 1, 25, he's talking about the creator. and, And just having to mention the creator, he says, who is blessed forever. Again, this word blessed means praiseworthy, where we get the word eulogy. 2 Corinthians 11.31, Paul says, The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. Did, Did you notice what he did there? He could have just said, God knows I'm not lying. But the mere mention of God makes him say, Who is blessed forever. This man is filled with praising God. It's like the mere mention of God to him makes him think about who God is, and this leads him inevitably to praise. And it's not a coincidence that the great Apostle Paul, who gives us so much of our deep theology in books like Romans and Ephesians, is the same Apostle who is filled with praise. And this leads to our context today. Paul starts verse number four by saying, even as. This tells us to look back at what was previously said. So what did verse three say? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as. In other words, now Paul is going to give us the specifics of what he is praising God for. First, he, he stated the matter broadly. Now he's going to go into the specifics. 
So remember, this is our context. Paul is praising God for his blessings. We need to keep this in the the forefront of our mind as as we consider this doctrine today. This is being given as a praise to God for his blessings. So Paul goes to say, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What a magnificent statement. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What is Paul talking about? What is he getting at here? Well, dear friends, this is what we call the doctrine of election or unconditional election or some refer to it as predestination. And what is this doctrine of election? Grudem says election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Before we go any farther, let me say this. As as clearly as Paul states this, This has been a hot topic discussion through all of church history. And because of this, some today have labeled this as a divisive doctrine, a doctrine we we do not speak of. So I've been in situations where you, you ask a person, what do you believe about this? And they don't want to talk about it. I'd rather not talk about that because that is a divisive doctrine and doesn't lead to unity. I love how Beaky and Smalley in the Reformed Systematic Theology answers this question or this objection. They say, avoiding election does not serve the church well. For the Bible is full of its teaching. And if God has willed to reveal election to us in his holy word, then his authority, wisdom, and goodness call us to contemplate it with the anticipation that it will help us to glorify him and enjoy him forever. So first of all, we don't just ignore something found in scripture because we label it divisive. That's just not how that works. But also God has revealed this doctrine to us to glorify himself and to help us enjoy him forever. So so this is how we need to think about this. God is revealing election through Paul to glorify himself and to help us enjoy God by praising him for who he is and what he has done. This doctrine should lead to praise. It brings glory to God and leads us to to praise this glorious God. But but is this what Scripture actually teaches? I mean, surely Paul means something other than what he just said. A common objection we hear is that that God he he just doesn't choose some people to be saved because he, he desires and he wills that all people would be saved, right? 
I mean, we have 1 Timothy 2 where, where, where Paul says, who, God who desires or wills all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of God. And then we have 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing or, or willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Is this saying that God doesn't choose some? He, he wants all people equally to be saved. And he doesn't do anything differently within the lives of anyone to, to affect that. Well, first of all, we need to understand these verses in their context. But secondly, we need, we need to understand what Scripture means when it talks about the will of God. R.C. Sproul points out the fact that when we talk about God's will, we can mean three different things. So first of all, there is the, the sovereign decree. The sovereign decretive will of God. And what is this? This is the will by which God brings to pass whatsoever he desires. Nothing will stop it from occurring. It's his sovereign decretive will. But then there is the perceptive will of God. And this is God's will that he reveals to us in his commandments to us, in his, in his law. This is what God desires for us to do. He commands us actually to do this, but he, he doesn't sovereignly force our hands to do it. God's will is that you would obey his law, but he doesn't sovereignly make each and every one of us obey his law at all times. But then there is the will of disposition. And this describes God's attitude or disposition. This reveals what is pleasing to God. As Sproul notes, when, when he judges the world, he delights in the, the vindication of his own righteousness and justice, yet he is not gleeful in a vindictive sense toward those who he receives and who receives his judgment. So no, he doesn't delight, he doesn't take delight in the fact that the wicked will be punished, but, but he doesn't stop them sovereignly from being punished. So there's a distinction here. So does God actually desire for all people to be saved? Not in the sense of his decretive will. He takes no delight in the death of the wicked, but he does not sovereignly decree that each and every person will be saved. He commands us all to repent and to believe in Christ, but he does not sovereignly force us all to do so. But, as Paul says, he does sovereignly decree some to be saved. He elects them. He chooses them. And this is what Scripture clearly teaches we see in our very own text that, that he chose us, and we already established that, that the us here is Christians. He's writing to the saints in Ephesus. When he says us, he's referring to Christians. He says God chose Christians. And this is not an exception. This is the common language of Scripture. In the Old Testament, God chose Israel to be his people. 
And so he says in Deuteronomy 7, 6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He said there's many peoples on the face of the earth, but I have chosen you. And in the New Testament, Christians are often referred to as the elect or chosen ones. Paul says in Colossians, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Why is he referring to Christians as the chosen ones? 1 Peter 1.1 Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect. Dear friends, are we seeing the pattern here? We, We can't just explain this away. But some say This does not make sense. I know that I chose Christ. Christ would disagree with you. Because he said in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you. By the way, he's declaring his divinity here as well. He is God. His will is God's will. In God choosing us, Christ chose us us. He says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And so we see 1 Corinthians. Paul says, for consider your your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the way wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame The strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world. Not many of them were wise or powerful or of noble birth. Why? Because God chose those who were the opposite of those things. It was his choice. It's plain and clear. So we say, how does this work? Does God see my faith? Does he see me? As a person who's going to believe in Christ and then, and because of my faith, he then chooses me. He goes, he goes back to the future and chooses me? Or to the past, rather? No. Paul says, before the foundation of the world, before creation, before the world existed, Consider what's said by the Apostle John in Revelation 13.8. John says of the beast, All who dwell on the earth will worship it. Now listen to this. Listen clearly. Everyone, so all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Their names written before the foundation of the world in the book of life. Explain that away. Before creation, before anything existed besides God, there was a book of life already with names written in it. Different, consider the gloriousness of this truth. Don't fight it. 
He wrote names in the book of life of the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And in other words, before the world was created, God chose who would be saved. Now this makes people uncomfortable. They say there is no way that God just chose people to save before they even existed. So I know what happened. Before the foundation of the world, God looked into the future and he saw who would put faith in Christ and he elected them based upon that. Paul says, no. In Romans 9, He says, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, the emphasis is that they were not born so they could not do anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, listen to this, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. God elected Jacob and passed over Esau, not based upon the foreseen works, but that the purpose of election might continue. Not of the person who works, but of him who calls. So some are are simply saved because God chose to save them. He made this choice before the world even existed. Dear friends, do you see here again this, this pactum salutis we talked about last week, this eternal counsel, our eternal covenant of redemption? God doing this, making this decision before the foundation of the world. But listen to this. Not only are we told, not only are we told that God chose us before the foundation of the world, but we are told that God chose us in Christ. Paul says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Here is this eternal covenant of redemption again. God there in eternity, in eternity past with the Son, determining to to save us, choosing who would be saved, and not only that, choosing how they would be saved, so that when, when Paul says that he elected us, he elected us in Christ. Once again, God didn't see that we were sinners in need of help once we got to earth. And said, I wonder what I can do to redeem them. And Christ said, oh, I know. I'll go to earth and pay for their sins. This was elected before the foundation of the world. And Paul reveals later on that the the blessings of God that he's referring to include redemption. And the forgiveness of sins. And this means that in order for God to choose to save us, he had to choose a Savior. As the Reformed Systematic Theology puts it, our election is bound up with, though not identical to, God's election of his Son to be mediator. 
This difference is essential. Why? Romans tells us that, that whom God predestines, he calls. And, and who he calls, guess what else he does? He justifies. Now, this is a problem. Why is this a problem? Because Proverbs 17, 15 tells us that he who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. We are wicked. We are born wicked. And God says, whoever justifies the wicked is an abomination. But we're also being told that that whomever he chooses, he also justifies. How can he do this and not violate his own morals? Very simple. He chose us in Christ. In him. From the very time that there was a choice of who would be saved, there was a choice of who would be the Savior. Because you could not have a redeemed people without a redeemer. So here again we see the, this, this glorious trinity meeting together in council, determining who would be saved and making a plan to save them before the foundation of the world. God wrote the names of the elect in the book of life, knowing that Christ would come and live the life that they should have lived and die the death that they should die, that he would redeem them and save them. Dear friends, listen to this. This love and concern and forethought and planning And execution of this plan should put us on our knees in praise. As I said last week, we are not worthy of this. I mean, consider this. You ever think about the complexity of an airport? That might just be me being weird. When I go and sit in an airport, I say, who is controlling all of this activity and chaos going on in here? This is a person who has some great planning skills. And we marvel at that sort of thing. But how much more marvelous that the Godhead had a council, made a covenant to choose a people and to save them, to redeem them, to sanctify them, to glorify them before the foundation of the world. All this happened before the world was created. This is a marvelous truth that should lead us to praise. And this is what is leading Paul to praise God. But how else does this election lead us to praise? Dear friends, we may resist election. But once we begin to understand something of our sinfulness, unconditional election becomes glorious. When we begin to understand something of what our sin has done to us, we we long for election. Why? What does Paul tell us? From our very birth. We are depraved. We are not spiritual people. Paul says the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. We were born in sin. 
This is what scripture says over and over again. We are born sinners. And because of this, we we cannot make good decisions. We have a fallen nature that would never choose Christ. We would not choose him. We would never do it on our own. We, We could never turn to Christ on our own, but because God chose us, He made sure that we heard the gospel. And because he chose us, the Holy Spirit regenerated our hearts. As as Christ told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And because God chose us, he allowed us to repent and believe. And because he chose us, he sanctifies us. Do you see the pattern? All of this flows from what? God's choice. As one systematic theology puts it, all saving grace begins in divine election. Election is like the the fount from which every other salvific blessing flows. The the only reason we receive any of these blessings that, that Paul talks about of justification, sanctification, redemption, adoption, glorification, the only reason we can receive these is because God has chosen us. Do we understand that? We see Romans 8. And what are we told? Whom God predestines. He calls, and whom he calls, he justifies, and whom he justifies, he sanctifies. Who is doing the the predestining, the calling, the justifying, and the sanctifying? It is God. Dear friends, consider the implications of this. Because we are elected, We cannot lose our salvation once actually saved. And this is why at the end of of chapter 1 here, at the end of verse 14 rather, what does Paul tell us? The Holy Spirit is the guarantee. He has sealed us. Our, Our salvation is secure. Our glorification is secure. And because of this, Paul tells us that God's love will not fail. Neither height nor depth. Nothing, he says, can can separate us from the love of God. Why? Because we have been chosen by Him. And we are told that that all things work together for good to to those who love God. How can this be? Because He chose us. Dear friends, We just discussed this morning that the gospel is the power of God 